3: Hey guys, it's Kayla. I am so happy you're able to join us today because we are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we were in our thirties, but surprise, we don't. And that's okay. It really is okay. Boisla, did the name of this episode catch your eye? Did you have to do a double take? Because I did the first time today's guest reached out. Zachary Zane is a Brooklyn-based columnist, sex expert, and activist whose work focuses on sexuality, culture, and the LGBTQ community. He is the author of Boy Slut, a memoir and manifesto. Boy Slut will help you understand the structural systems in place that cause us pain, sadness, anxiety, and anger. It will speak to why so many relationships fail and why a great number of people on this planet are unsatisfied with their sex lives. We talk about this and so much more. I'm really excited to share with you my interview with today's guest, Zachary Zane. Guys, I'm here with Zachary Zane. I'm obsessed with him. I'm so happy you're here. I was we were just talking off mic before this and I was saying, you know, we haven't had an episode like this on this podcast and I get a little nervous to talk about sex. And this is the whole point of your book. And this is why we're having this conversation. And I don't I'm not just saying this. There's no one else I want to have this conversation with because you I already feel at home with you just even through the computer screen. And after reading your memoir, I really can't wait. There's so much. To dive into, I know you wanted to write this for some time now, and and we've needed a book like this for some time. I've needed a book like this for some time. You know, you say how you're not aware of a memoir that's written by a bisexual man on how to overcome sexual shame, and you're right. It's about damn time. <laughs> so here we are. You know, but before we get into everything, I want to take you back to Little Zach, Little Zach, who's <laughs> who is, you know. Struggling with his OCD and maybe has a little bit of shame. Horny all the time. I mean, take us through your experience growing up. You write about how you grew up in a liberal, queer affirming household, which is amazing because that's not always how these memoirs start. And so you were still having to overcome sexual shame, even though your parents were so open to everything. And a lot of that is due to like traumatic nanny moments and teachers and things like that. So can you take our listeners through little Zach's journey in the beginning?
2: Sure. I can tell you really read the book, which I I appreciate. Of course I did. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the kind of important reasons for that was explaining that you don't necessarily need this like Really crazy religious upbringing that tells you being gay is being wrong in order to experience sexual shame. And I really want to illustrate how kind of pervasive sexual shame is how insidious it is. And even when you grow up in a household that is, you know, I grew up in the Los Angeles Valley with like reformed Jews, and who I had gay uncles on both sides of my family, I knew it was a okay to be gay, but still had so much shame because I picked it up from society from the media from my teachers from my classmates from what I learned and so it was really important to me to be like okay like even if you didn't have this like traumatic moment or get kicked out of your house like yes you can still have an extreme amount of sexual shame just because we live in this world and we can't escape it and also what I talk about in the first chapter is specifically looking at, at like terrible OCD growing up. And I think people really misunderstand what how OCD can manifest. For me, like, yes, I did have some physical compulsions. And like one of the things I would do is like check my alarm clock to make sure it was on like every 10 minutes. So I never actually slept. I would just like be up like checking to make sure it was on. And then I knew it was on and I felt this kind of self-loathing and hatred for myself for not being able to control these compulsions to check that it was on. And then because of that, I was also like never sleeping. So that just compounded everything and made everything worse, right? But one of the other ways that my like OCD would manifest was with a lot of sexual shame and sexual guilt and manifestations. And that's actually pretty common. It's not just me. But so the first chapter is me in my therapist's office. I'm like eight or nine years old. And I'm crying in his office because I can't stop imagining people naked. And and I write this in a very humorous way. <laughs> um
3: your writing for... is fantastic, by the way. And you're you. you're hooked instantaneously.
2: Thank you so much. So I'm there and I'm actually now imagining him naked. And so, like, and I imagine him like, re- like he, you know, he'd reposition himself, and then I'd imagine this pair of like hairy grapefruits just kind of in front of me. And like then I like, can't think straight. I don't know what's going on. And at the time, it wasn't even like a sexual arousal thing. It wasn't like I was imagining having sex with them. It wasn't that I was turned on by them. It was just, I thought nudity was bad, you know, quote unquote bad. And what I was doing was bad. And because I thought this was bad, that's often the way like an OCD thought works. Like what you think is doing, you're doing is bad and therefore you can't stop thinking about it or dwelling on it or obsessing it. And so he kind of explains, he's like, I, I as I'm crying to him, he's like, hey, you're allowed to imagine anyone naked. Anyone includes." me as well there's nothing wrong with imagining people naked and he's like and the only reason this becomes an issue is because you think something is wrong with it but if you like can embrace and accept that there's actually nothing wrong with it then I really do think these thoughts will stop but I use this as a larger jumping off point to be like okay so why did my OCD manifest with sexual shame and then I kind of go into that larger aspect of being like well we live in this sex negative society that no matter how seemingly sex positive your upbringing was, you're still going to learn all these harmful messages from society and they're going to become ingrained in you.
3: It's so true, and I what I love so much is you write about how there is hardly any cultural conversation on on you say specifically men and how they can better engage and enact with their own sexuality. And I think you've actively tried to shift this narrative with your yeah. men men's health column, Sex Explain It, which I totally have to read now. By the way,
2: oh, it's fun since I'm
3: a huge fan of your writing. I think that you can change that. I mean, I I, I think that you single handedly can change that. I really do. I mean, I think you've had Okay. You've had sex with 2000 people. I don't know if that number's <laughs> increased by the now since since you've written the book, but that's a real number. I mean, that's the size of a rock concert. And <laughs> was this a specific number that you wanted to hit? Like were you was this a goal or
2: No. It, it, it's also an estimate. It could be anywhere between 1500 and like 3500. I have no fucking clue. You know what I mean? I think it's probably it's definitely Probably more than 2,000. Yeah, still the size
3: of a rock concert for sure. <laughs> Can you explain why you want to get your sexual egot to this? I love this part. I love it.
2: Oh, I talk. I know. I talk about people. I've had sex with people who have Emmys. Tony's and Grammys, but I haven't had sex with anyone with an Oscar. And I hope I, uh, yet. yet. So I'm trying to get my sexual EGOT. And I think I know some people like took this joke. I had like a review that came out and they're like, oh, like his like off putting humor. And they y- use this example of the joke.
3: They just didn't get it. Then <laughs>
2: they they just didn't get it. And I hope it comes off as playful. And it's like, I don't have this little back black book of everyone that I have slept with. I think. For pretty much every like man I know, and even woman I know, like in their like teens, when they just started sleeping with people, they had this list in their mind, and of everyone they had sex with, and it, you know, asking someone what their number was was like 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 a big deal, and then you kind of reach a point where you're like, well, this is a little fucked up. Um this is kind of reducing people to just being sex objects. I don't really want to be doing this. And so now I have sex because I like sex, I enjoy the pleasure. And I'm also very communicative with my partners about what I can give them. You know what I mean? Like, is this a casual type of relationship? Is this going to be a one time thing? Do I see myself getting more serious with them? So we can go in with an understanding of what this might become and also tell them how
3: mature of you how amazing of you I mean I wish at a younger age that we would all have the wherewithal to be able to have that conversation before we get into a relationship because it would have saved so many of us heartbreak
2: it's and I mean I did not have that at a younger <laughs> age to clarify these are all new skills yeah. that I've learned and I I think one of the tough things while writing this book is you know I'm reflecting about all the times I really hurt people you know, and obviously it was not malicious. Like I, I did not do this purposefully, but because I also had shame, I didn't know how to communicate my desires. I didn't know how to reject people kindly. I, I, I thought the idea of like just rejecting people was so challenging for me, and I thought it was better to kind of ghost or to like. I knew ghosting wasn't wrong, but it's like peter out. You know, they'd hit you up, and then you respond two days later, kind of with a cryptic text, and eventually I'm like, oh, they'll get the message, and it's like, well, that's actually significantly worse than just letting them know hey, I, I had a really fun time. I don't actually see this going anywhere, but I really appreciate the time we spent together or something that's a little less formal. I feel like that kind of sounds like a rejection interview, but like, you know, whatever, but like something along those lines. And I also, so I'm like going a little bit all over the place here because I do have a chapter on rejection. And I do talk about how when I've gotten better at giving that to people, people often respond with anger. And it's been really challenging for me when I say this, and I feel like, oh, I'm doing the right quote unquote, the right thing. And people will be like, oh my God, you used me. I thought you really liked me more or or whatever it was.
3: Well, I think people aren't used to honesty when it comes to relationships and dating and especially the beginning of a relationship or the ending of a people are used to fluff and kind of bullshit when it comes to ending a relationship. And so when someone's brutally honest, they don't know what to do about it even though it is the right thing. And so I want to start a revolution and and help our listeners understand that I think honesty is really important and I think we are as a society gearing towards that. You know, even just if you include like on a broader spectrum so- social media and that aspect of instead of, you know, the filtered lifestyle, now people are really responding to the honesty of lifestyle on socials and so i think that you are on the way to starting this revolution of allowing people to just be honest because how nice is that to have a partner really genuinely be honest with you about where they are in the relationship and not wasting your time
2: and it's a level of yeah it's a level of respect and it's a level of i I just actually saw someone there's this a polyamory activist that i follow her name is Lian Yao. what's her thing polyphilia is what she is is her handle? Oh, is she, like her
3: social handle or her. You have so many terms. I love the glossary. Oh yeah, in in your book because I'd be lost without it, and realizing I'd spend so much time on Google, so I had to thank you on air for that glossary.
2: Oh yeah, no, so I have a glossary in the beginning of the book because that wasn't like on purpose. I just realized as I was writing something, and I'm using certain language, then I would have to kind of describe it in the middle of the story, and then it would take you out of it. I'm like, you know what? I'd rather kind of have this in the beginning so that way you can refer back to it. it doesn't have to break up the story. But I was surprised by how many people were like, this is great. And I'm like, wow, oh, it's
3: amazing. I'm, I am I want to print the page out and have it handy because there's so many terms I don't know. And I'm really grateful the way you explain it. But uh, the reason I brought that up is because you just said a term. And I was wondering, "Ooh, is that something I should know? And is it in your glossary? Or were you referring to someone's? Oh, no,
2: that, that's just literally her social. It's handle. her social handle. Great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But she just did a great post recently where she's talking about this idea of kind of dispelling this idea of fuckboy, where people are calling people like fuckboys when they're very honest about what they want from the beginning. And they're like, hey, I'm looking for a more casual relationship or just casual sex. And people will be like, oh, this guy's a super fuckboy. And it's like, well, no, a fuckboy to me is someone who lies, pretends that he wants more of a relationship, has sex with you, uses you and disposes of you. Like, you you are an autonomous human being. If you do not want to have a casual sexual relationship with someone, that doesn't make them a fuckboy. They're giving you the information. You'd be like, hey, this is really not what I'm looking for. Thank you. And you part ways. But so, so often I hear of like, really what's just like misalignment and people wanting different needs to then really trying to blame the other person in a way where I'm like, "There's there's no one to blame here. And I know it kind of seems easier if there's someone to blame. If it's them or even yourself. Like, like if it's yourself, you can be like, okay, well, I can change and grow and learn from this. But when there's these experiences where it's just like you're just not aligned, you're mismatched, there's no one to blame, it can honestly be more like challenging and daunting and upsetting because you're like, ah oh, shit, I can't even no one did anything wrong. Is this what the state of the world is? But she just did this great post about this, being like, these guys aren't fuckboys. You should just listen to what they say. And if you, you don't want to do it, then don't do it and don't try to change them too because that's obviously a big thing too
3: right and so you brought up the term fuck boy and that brings me one of the things I wanted to talk about was the term boy slut and just slut in general and reclaiming that word because I do think there's such a negative connotation with the word slut do you do we know the history of the word
2: at all oh god like it, it, it's I did something a while ago on the history of the word slut. I really should know this and I don't want to, because I'm not 100% sure, I don't want to say anything. Right. But I think it was originally like a disheveled, slovenly woman. So it didn't actually necessarily have like a sexual, sexual. connotation. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if it was like Dutch or something, but it was like or mm-hmm. I, Again, I do not remember, so do not quote me on right, this. Right, right, right. And then over time, obviously it gained the connotation that it has. You know, I define boy slut in the because I know also specifically I've had some women be like, hey, I don't think it's your place to kind of reclaim this word because this word hasn't kind of been hurled at you as a way to control your behavior and harm and demean you. And I understand kind of where they're coming from with it. But I actually, you know, I could read the definition of boy slut if we would like that. do I it.
3: Have... We want it. Yes.
2: Boy slut. You might not be thrilled by the title of this book or by the fact that I call myself and readers boy slut's. After all, the word slut is highly gendered, and it has seldom been hurled at me or men as an insult intended to harm, belittle, or control my behavior. Men are often praised for having sex with a lot of women. They're called a player or a regular Don Juan, whereas women are deemed simply sluts. This pervasive double standard is not new, and men have always benefited from it. I know I have. fairly, women who are called sluts are often deemed either mentally unwell, she's got real daddy issues, or undeserving of love. I'd never marry a slut. So why do I feel like it's my right to reclaim a word that hasn't typically been used to hurt and control me? First, I choose to identify as a boy slut because it exposes the double standards of promiscuity associated with men and women, and in doing so, hopefully works to dismantle it. Second, as someone who also proudly identifies as a queer faggot, I know the power of reclamation. I hope to help remove some of the stigma and shame that accompanies being a boy slut or slut. So what exactly is a boy slut?
3: I don't know. Tell me. (laughs)
2: Let us find out. (laughs) I define it as a person of any gender or sexual orientation who approaches sex without a lick of judgment or shame. Being a boy slut is not about having a high body count. It's about having the sex you want with whomever you want, however you want, without shame. Identifying as a boy slut is to give a gigantic middle finger to society, letting everyone on this planet know that you will not be controlled or behave a certain way, just because that's what's considered normal, ethical, or right.
3: Without shame are the two key words within that, because that's the most difficult part. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. (laughs)
2: Shame looks different for depending on which community you're a part of. And I really want to make it clear that like being a boy slut or slut to me is not about having a high body count. I specifically think of this of like gay men or queer men who often feel like they're being like prude-shamed where it's something because they're not on apps like Grindr, because they're not having unprotected sex, because they're really looking for maybe a more traditional heteronormative type relationship, and they their friends make fun of them and tease them for them and prude shame for that. So in that regard. You know, shaming comes from that aspect where it's like, oh, you're not sleeping with enough people. And then, of course, there's slut shaming, which comes from the opposite aspect. And really explaining that it's like whatever your relationship with sex is, own it. If it is you are asexual and find yourself really not wanting to have sex ever, that's great. You can still be a boy slut, own that. If you like fucking someone every day that ends with the word day, then do that. If you only like having sex, once you have an emotional connection, do that. Like, There's no wrong way to have it. And I think one thing I also talk about in this book is no matter how niche or unique you think your sexual desires are or your relationship orientation is, you can absolutely find someone else that matches you.
3: I know. What I loved so much is you said, after all of this... I learned I'm not special and that was the greatest part of you all you really wanted to know that. I know throughout this whole book you were you were kind of not kind of you were struggling. You didn't know how to identify. You really didn't understand what your sexual orientation was. You just wanted to know what it was. And I can't imagine feeling that way for so long and not under not knowing and then on top of that having OCD. I mean, this is it was a real it was a real struggle for you i just want our listeners to understand that this memoir while it is funny and and like laugh out loud funny and so well done it really is honest and real and you get raw and you talk about what you really went through not even as just a child but even into your teen years into college all everything and then how you finally understood who you were but it wasn't really until was it the the Was it your senior year? I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Was it your senior year of college?
2: Senior year of college is finally when I had like penetrative anal sex with a man. And, and even that, I managed to kind of like rationalize and being like, oh, even though I enjoyed it and what I clearly wanted to do for so long, I still was able to kind of blame things on drugs and alcohol because I was using heavily at the time. And it was like my get out of jail free card where I could be like, oh, I was just like super drunk. So it doesn't count. It's like, well... No, no, it's it still does count, and probably if you need to get this drunk to do it, and you find yourself, you keep doing it, you probably are attracted to men. But yeah, it was so challenging at the time. There was such a little amount of bi visibility. I, I can't emphasize that enough, and very little male bisexual visibility. And every person I knew, every guy I knew, excuse me, who came out as bi later came out as gay. So as someone who was just like, I don't know a single bi man who didn't come out as gay. I'm like even though I'm egocentric, I love myself, I think I'm I'm not delusional. I can't be the only bisexual man in the world. And then it wasn't until I got into therapy and I had this therapist who said, when I kind of was explaining my confusion to them, what he said to me as I was kind of going into this confusion of I think I might be gay or straight, he interrupted me and he actually said like, Zach, you seem, can I speak freely with you? Can I be blunt? And I'm like, yes, please. And he goes, you seem very clearly bisexual. Is there something I'm missing? And I responded, oh, that shit doesn't exist in men. And he responded, Zach, you're too smart to think that. Which was such a way to also like hit my ego a little bit because I pride myself in being intellectual to really just like, ah, and I'm
3: like, ah, it was a smart attack. Sounds like a good therapist.
2: (laughs) He was. And one thing I learned kind of through this is once I started talking about being bisexual, just like people at bars, even certain family members, like it is amazing how many people all of a sudden come out as bisexual to you. And maybe they're a little intimidated by the word because the word has so many negative connotations, but they'll talk about, you know, the men and women that they've had sex with, who they're attracted to. And it's like, and you can see how badly they've wanted to talk about this. And they have no one to talk about this and just the smile like, oh, my God, me too. And they're like, so because they they've been hiding this aspect of themselves. But I think it's the beauty of being bi is the moment you start talking about it openly is the moment you realize, holy shit, there are a lot of fucking bi people Uh, out there. And
3: how beautiful that is. How wonderful. And I feel like you are such the right person to do that, to to be able to open people up and allow them to freely be themselves. I want we have some younger listeners on this podcast who may not understand what the early 2000s were like. And so can you just paint the bisexual climate at that time or really the
2: non-existence of? Yeah. I mean, also, I remember that was a time where like everyone was saying that's so gay. You know what I mean? Like I went to a school that was just like no one in my high school came out as gay or bi or non-binary or trans during high school. Everyone waited till later because we did not feel safe because every, just homophobia was rampant. Every other word was calling someone faggot and that's so gay. And like, that does take an impact. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's not just words, especially when you're a teen and you're very vulnerable and everyone's teasing people for being gay. I was teased for being more effeminate. Yeah, it it was very tough to have that. But in terms of bisexual visibility, like, it it was, it, it just like, I remember Googling like an early college, like after I'd hooked up with a few guys and being like, okay, let me see if, like, what's online about bisexuality? and bi men specifically. And essentially the only thing that came up were like research studies about like bi men or men who have sex with men having and spreading HIV. And then maybe a few offhanded pieces about like 10 things to never say to a bisexual person or 10 myths about bisexuality. So the few bisexual content there was wasn't actually catered towards bi people. It was catered towards gay and straight people explaining to them that we exist And so when I started writing about bisexuality, I really filled this void a little bit of being like, I'm going to write bi content by bi person for actually bi people. So I'm like, how do you deal with internalized biphobia? Or how do you find a bisexual community? How do you come out to your family as bi? Challenges that come up while dating as bi, and like really things that we're not just trying to justify that like we're humans and that we're real. And For a while, it became known like as the bi guy. Like like, that is what I was doing. That was my brand. And I loved it. And I've since expanded from that. But also like in a way, this book, like it's for everyone, regardless of sexual orientation, gender, everything. But it also is a little bit of my love letter to the bisexual community. Yeah,
3: it really is. And that's so apparent when you read it. I think this one of my favorite parts that I really want to mention to our listeners, because I want them to take it and run with it, too. You talk about STI versus STD because std is a term that is thrown around all the time and you are correct in calling sexual infectious diseases is a way of stigmatizing sex
2: it's yeah so sti is like a, a is just a sexually transmitted infection and it can become an std if it becomes this an actual disease or a long-term thing but when we just call all of them stds like the way we call gonorrhea an std it's like well no that is just an infection. You don't call strep throat something that you also treat with antibiotics a disease. And the fact that we call it a disease is really stigmatizing. So I really try to make the difference between STIs and STDs. And like, and again, STD is when like an infection or something like actually becomes a disease. But for like gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, all these things that you can treat with antibiotics, it, they're just an infection. They're just a bacterial infection, and you should not be calling it a disease.
3: And it's almost like we're taught, we're not really taught in schools what that really is. I mean, I know what I thought when, if you got chlamydia, you had it for life and you were, you know, you never left the house and no one, we don't have proper sex education in our schools. And this is something you talk about as well that I so agree with. We're not taught any useful information when it comes to having sex. And then we're, we're, we end up going on the internet to try and figure it out. And we know what a wormhole that is. And porn, we turn to porn to kind of like see what sex is and figure it out. And that's not realistic. And so we have this skewed mentality. And the truth is, sex is uncomfortable. And it can be awkward and weird. You're naked with someone, you're very vulnerable and connecting with a partner Is difficult. And so what do you think we can do? And thank God you wrote this book, too, because this is something we have to consult with. But it is really difficult because it is taught in all schools, but it is taught incorrectly, in my opinion.
2: It's I mean, luckily, we do live in the age of information, right? And obviously, there are governmental groups and even just like Instagram, the way it will ban or flag or whatever, delete just like sexual information things. But because there is an era like there's so much proper information and sexual health education online. And there are also a lot of like, places that direct you to these resources. So you're able to get accurate information. It is unfortunate that we have to seek it out ourselves. And as you mentioned, like the internet is a little bit of a clusterfuck. So you do have to use some independent critical reasoning and figure out what sources are valid and which are not. It takes a little bit of work, but there is more correct information out there that you can access and a lot more pleasure-focused information, a lot of like queer sex information, and a lot of which co- approaches it not from a place of like fear and shame, like, I remember seeing in my uh, like sexual health class or my health class, like those, they always would pull up the images of like people with gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia and like you and like, boy, did they like, I've gotten every STI and let me tell you, I have never, I have never, like I've gotten gonorrhea, chlamydia syphilis. I have, my dick has never looked like that. It's literally just like, okay, maybe a little bit of leakage. Okay. There's like a wart or two here. Like it is not like my dick is like shriveling up and falling off. And like, it looks horrifying. Like, They found that like clearly people who did like did not go in and get tested or treated and kind of let it go. And that could be also an element of shame. That's a reason why people do not seek out doctors. And also one thing with STI shaming is like it also means people like do not get tested because they're afraid of the results. They do not share the results or open about the results because they're afraid of stigma and shame. And so like, this has real world ramifications of actually spreading more STIs, causing more infections that can be easily treatable to end up them becoming larger issues because we have the shame. So it's like, it, it actually causes real problems by the fact that we shame STI in terms of how we get treated and how we approach and how truthful we are to our partners. Obviously, you should never lie to your partners about an STI status. You, I do not do that. But it's, you, you at least understand why people are doing it. You know what I mean? Because of the shame and the fear and the fear of rejection. And that's why I kind of talk about in that chapter, I'm like, if someone tells you of an STI, thank them. Say, like, that should be your appropriate response. Hey, thank you for letting me know. I'm going to go in and get tested and treated as soon as I can. Do not shame them. Do not be mad at them. As I, like, uh, and especially, uh, I, this is assuming that they did not lie to you and they, you know what I mean? If they lied to you and purposely misled you, that's a different story. But I mean, if, But if that's not the case, like they didn't purposely do this, this happens, go and get tested and treated. That is the appropriate
3: reaction. Yes, absolutely. You talk about the internet being readily available and checking our sources and everything. Did you have any literature that you accessed or anything similar to BoySlet that you felt like helped you through it in case someone is listening right now and is going through this and trying to figure it out for themselves?
2: In terms of, like, specific... Like, I love the book Sled Ever by Carly Scorantino. I know she writes the sex column at Vice.
3: She just seems so cool, too. I'm such a fan. I've never met her, but I, I'm a fan.
2: Yeah, she's. I'm like, I think she knows who I am. We've like, I was gonna be on her podcast, it ended oh. up happening. But then I get like nervous around her if I see her, and I'm, I don't want to be like, oh, do you like remember me? Like, like I'm always like, fuck, like I need to.
3: You have to go up to her. You have to. I'm fangirling. <laughs> yes. hard
2: her book is again less about like sexual health and information, but I think it is about like again. The book is called Slut Ever, and she's someone who like really is about reclaiming a slut and reclaiming your own relationship with sex. So specifically as a queer man, there's this very famous book called The Velvet Rage, and it's not specifically health related. It's a book by Alan Downs, and he is this like therapist, psychologist, and it actually talks about all of the way that shame and isolation impacts gay men and how that manifests very negatively as an adult. So kind of some of the toxic behaviors that are a little stereotypically gay, but there's somewhat stereotypes for a reason and how, you know, having the shame and isolation like really impacts us as all. And then how to get over that so you could have a healthy relationship with other people, how you can actually healthily take rejection because we've been rejected so much by our family, from our friends, from our loved ones. Like, yeah, we don't have a great relationship with rejection. We take it very personally. It's very tough. So that was a book that really helped kind of break down like the basics of, I don't want to say like gay psychology. Obviously, like I'm speaking very broadly here. Everyone's unique and different, but that was a really helpful book for understanding. I also, if I can pitch my own shit. Uh, Please. But I wrote a book, I co-authored a book for men's health called Best Sex Ever. And that actually really is more educational. Best Sex Ever, 200 frank, funny, and friendly answers about getting it on. And it actually is... Kind of I think a lot of everything in one book where it's like understanding a lot of sexual health, how it is really is focused on like how to have pleasurable sex and kind of approaching it from like a not toxically masculine standpoint.
3: And are these actual questions that people wrote into men's health and then you answered?
2: Oh, so the book is more. So I have like, it, the book is has like, actually, every chapter ends with a sex planet, which we just took from the website. So that that was a real question that someone wrote in that we answered that kind of pertained to it. But every chapter, we kind of have an expert. So whether it's on like masturbation, or anal sex, or whatever it is that we talk to the expert on that, we ask them a bunch of things, and then we kind of go through. So it's a really good I feel like if if you're new to this Uh or even if you're not, there's just like a lot of like helpful information in one place that's like scientifically backed and research. And we have experts instead of needing to kind of go through to a bunch of different places.
3: Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute.
2: Small details are big surfaces.
3: we're back thank you so much for writing this stuff because it it really is true I mean and I even said this in the beginning having these conversations is not easy for me and I know it's because there's a stigma around it and so even just being able to talk to you about it openly is helping me personally and then all these people listening it's going to help them and hopefully it does continue to just kind of break down all those barriers that are built. And I know we're not there yet, but do you think you've seen progress at all within the past few decades or even in within the last decade? Or do you think that, hell no, no way, There's we, we have so far to go, we don't even want to you know, admit that there's any progress yet? I, I'm kind of wondering where we are on that
2: scale. No, I think we've definitely made progress. And I think there are obviously... St- some major setbacks, and I think because we've made progress is why we're now facing these setbacks, right? You know what I mean? Because we're making strides forward, people are now trying to become more sex negative and puritanical or attacking trans rights or gay rights or drag queens performing, whatever it is, that's coming because we've had relative success and progression, right? So it's a response to it. But at least in terms of like bisexual visibility, yeah, like it it is. But when I was doing this, I almost started writing almost a decade ago, which is insane. We're not getting any younger, right. it seems.
3: <laughs> Although you look pretty young, I do have to say. The, people can't see you right now, but you are wildly handsome with like scruff and a good like quaff hair. You look great.
2: Thank you. It's all the fillers and Botox. That, that's, <laughs> it works. It's working. <laughs> it's working. But um, no, thank you. But it's seeing like the amount of, as I kind of mentioned earlier, like when I Googled bisexual guy, there was nothing there. Now when you Google it, there is so much there. There's so much more bisexual visibility. We're seeing more people identify as bi- in higher numbers, significantly higher numbers than 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And that's not because, you know, their are hormones in the milk or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's because people feel more comfortable embracing this label, and that is due to visibility. That's due to the fact that people are out. They know this is a valid sexual orientation. They know they don't have to pick a side like and just be gay or straight. And what a question I receive a decent amount, which is kind of interesting for It. and I try not to answer the same question, or roughly the same type of question a lot, but from like gay men in their 40s and 50s, who came out as gay in their 20s, and like when I came out as gay, there was no, like bisexual men wasn't fucking real. And because I was like more effeminate, and I felt I had these strong attractions, I just identified as gay. And, you know, I'm in an open relationship with my husband. We've been together for 5 million years, whatever it is, and, and they're happy and whatever. And they're like, I, I want to sleep with women. And like, I, I feel like my husband will be so confused if I'm like, I, I'm actually bi bisexual and I kind of known this, but I like didn't know it was an option. And how the fuck do I do that? How do I tell someone? I'm like, oh, so I'm a 50 year old gay man who's never had sex with a woman. Who the fuck is going to want to sleep with me? And I'm like, I'm like, you have to meet my friends. They, my female friends would love to take your quote unquote straight virginity. They would get off on it. So again, goes back to always finding a match and a pair. It always exists. But yeah, I was like, you're gonna experience some biphobia, you know, but hopefully not from your husband, but your friends might meet like you might be confused. That kind of happened with Lil Nas X when he recently was like, I think I might be a little bit bi. And I bet you he is. And like people really came for him, like very angrily. And it's just like, I
3: don't know why people want other people's sexuality put into a box that they need to understand because it really has nothing to do with them. And it just seems like people want to be able to understand it, but they don't need to be able to understand other people. There's just something about, other people needing to control others' sexuality that seems so bizarre to me. And I don't, I really, truly am struck, always struggle to understand why people care so much about what other people choose to do.
2: It's so, I, I understand a little bit of why bisexuals have been kind of ostracized by the gay community. And I think there's this idea that you can choose to have a straight life. You know what I mean? Like you can choose to marry a, for me, I could choose to marry a woman And when I walk down the streets holding hands with her, I'm not worried about being assaulted or mugged the way that I am when I walk down the streets holding hand with a man. And because of that, you can choose this easier life where you're not a part of our community. You're really not one of us. You also don't experience our struggles the same way. And what I often try to say is like, being a victim of a hate crime does not make you any queerer. You know what I mean? Like, like, of course, like, you you should check your privilege. Obviously, it, like there are privileges that come from you know being in a straight passing relationship. There are also some downsides to it as well. And I think very few people are saying it's just like oh I I understand the same struggles as a very femme gay boy. It's like no I I I don't. But I'm still equally queer. I'm still equally a part of this community. And I actually would like to be a member of this community and help con- contribute to it and be a part and be helpful. But if I feel isolated, I'm not going to do that. And I think about sp- specifically by women dating or married to men. And they often is one of the biggest ones where that that group where they're just like, I really do not feel queer enough. I don't feel like a member of this community. When I do try to come out, uh, people kind of shame me because they don't think I'm a part of it. And I'm like, that's kind of on them. And again, you're not saying that like, you experience the same struggles. You're not saying you're equally, but like, or more marginalized, or whatever it is. You're just like, saying that I'm a part of this community, which, yes, you are. That's a fact.
3: Oh, there's so much to unpack here, and it's really, I guess, I'm at a loss for words because there are so many different lifestyles, and weight. and I just, I'm, I'm just grateful that you are discussing this because, as someone who has not necessarily read a ton of literature in this regard. It makes me really happy and joyful that it exists. Truly, and I'm not just saying that. I I feel like there's so many different ways to live, and I'm just really grateful that this is now in the spotlight. I I know that you have Sex it, which is the sex and relationship advice column at Men's Health, and you have Navigating Non Monogamy at Cosmo, and this is where you share all your mistakes that you made and your polygamous journey. <laughs>
2: This one's been tough. So that is a new column. I think we've maybe had like, it's like once a month and it's digital. I think maybe the third one's coming out this week. And I kind of pitched it to them with the idea of non-monogamy content like is everywhere online right now. However, it's always very introductory and basic content. It's always like how to open up your relationship or how to navigate jealousy. And as someone who's been polyamorous for almost a decade as well, like it's like, I, I don't really struggle with jealousy and I'm not obviously opening up my relationship, there are are still 10 million things I struggle with while being polyamorous, and none of those things are being addressed. So I kind of wanted to have actually some content that goes beyond the 101, that goes beyond the how to navigate jealousy for people who've been in an open relationship, monogamous, polyamorous relationship for six months, a year, five years, 10 years, because again, we struggle with many things and that's not being addressed. Yeah, the format of the column is I talk about something in my non-monogamous journey where I fucked up, made a mistake. And then uh, what I learned from that mistake, so hopefully you don't make that same mistake.
3: (laughs) What is like, is there a mistake that you have yet to write about that you're like, oh my God, that you're safe? It's a good one that you can share with us or anything just like kind of funny?
2: It's, I think one mistake I, I am writing about right now is there's this kind of obsession. and I, I know some non-monogamous people are going to disagree with me and you're allowed to. that that is, of course, that's how it is. But often like non-monogamous people, instead of breaking up, what we do is we call de-escalating. So what that means is like, okay, like if we were primary partners or someone who lived together or you know saw each other every day, we're just going to de-escalate our relationship to maybe secondary partners. So it's like, okay, I'm going to move out. We're still going to be in each other's lives, but differently. And maybe it's a more casual dating dynamic. And we we love doing this f- for a reason. And I finally realized, I'm like, we need to just fucking break up. It's actually quite challenging to de-escalate a lot of the time because wh- what you need is a healthy break and a no contact rule. And then you can decide the relationship that you want to have. But I speak about this fear that a lot of polyamorous people have of needing to have a perfectly seeming relationship because always what happens is when a polyamorous couple breaks up, someone inevitably is like, oh, that's because polyamory never works out long term. And so you feel the weight of everyone on your shoulders to be like, oh, this is perfect. No, we don't have a bitter breakup. We're better than that. We can actually still be in each other's lives and have this beautiful relationship And a lot of the time, I think couples de-escalate when one of them actually just wants to break up. And that's the truth of it. And so, again, de-escalating is valid. I think there are reasons why people want to do it. I think also when you have kids, obviously, like that that complicates things. I understand why de-escalating. Kids add a whole other. We need to accept that like, okay, like we're allowed to fail. We're allowed to fail in our relationships. And honestly, I don't see if you had a beautiful relationship with someone for a year or two years and then broke up, I don't see that as failure because I don't see as like being with someone until you die as the end game if i have a beautiful year with someone and we both decide hey this isn't right for us that's a successful relationship but i just wish we didn't put ourselves on a pedestal and i wish we didn't feel like we have to be better than it's like no we're allowed to just fucking break up just fucking break up like like, and so that's what i've learned of just being like i'm i'm if i want to break up like i'm not de-escalating i'm taking some time apart and then if i want to have a relationship with this person we'll both be in a better place to be able to do so. However, that relationship will look.
3: What a wonderful way to think. But I can also understand having the weight of all that on your shoulders. It's a, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. Well, that's a cool new column then. So it's once a month in Cosmo online. And we can look at it because, wow, how, how amazing. So just and that's also proof that we're making steps in the right direction. Right? Because, I mean, I, I don't think 10 years ago that would have been something that existed. I mean, or would it have been?
2: No. I don't think no, no, so. No. I really do think in terms of like just like sex positivity, ethical non-monogamy, bisexuality, at least in the media, like it's it's everywhere. It really is everywhere at like mainstream publications, Cosmo, New York Times, Men's Health, like everyone is talking about it. And that's great. You know what I mean? It is good.
3: It is. It's awesome. You guys, I highly recommend Boislette. I, I am not just saying this because Zachary's in front of me. We would not have had him on the podcast if we didn't. I think that it is a fantastic memoir. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for being here with me today. I know everyone's going to want to follow you on all the socials. So can you give us your socials before we let you go? Twitter and
2: Instagram is usually what I use. It's Zachary Zane underscore, the underscores at the end. My website, zacharyzane.com. So my book is out May 9th. So it's out now, and I'm doing a little bit of a book tour. So if you go to ZacharyZane.com, you can see I'll be in LA, SF, Chicago, Nashville, Boston, New York, a a little bit all over. So hopefully a town near you. Yeah. Come Come visit him, you guys. He's
3: so fun. And we'll have the the link to all that in our show notes. So you can just click from right there and go to Zach's website and go meet him and check out the book. Thank you for joining me. You're so lovely. I'm such a fan. Thank
2: you so much. Thank you.
3: I'm such a fan of Zachary's and I'm really happy he was so honest and blunt with me on today's episode. And he really goes there in his memoir as well. I highly recommend it. I was laughing out loud the whole time I read it. And he is a really great interviewer and a really great writer. I really appreciate him talking about the 2000s compared to today and what bisexuality means. And we do still have a long way to go towards acceptance, but I think he is absolutely paving that way. And I'm so grateful that he came on today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. We have another great one coming for you next week. Until then, take care. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions, hosted by me, Kayla Yule. Produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions. Editing by Diane Kang. Post-production sound by Coco Lawrence. And production assistance by Melanie D. Watson.